welcome to the School Business Leadership Podcast. In today's episode, Mykon Metcalf joins me to talk about her journey into and through the SBL profession. She talks about the various roles she's had, what the transition from primary to secondary was like, parts of the role she loves the most, and how she dealt with being the only non-teacher on the SLT. And because we're SBLs and we love to chat, we didn't stop there. We also talk about the evolution of the SBL role, what the future holds for the profession, and how SBLs can prepare themselves for it. Let's dive in. And on today's episode, I'm joined by Mykon Metcalf. Mykon is an experienced school business professional and multi-academy trust executive leader. She's worked in finance and operations in a range of schools and academy trusts and is currently the chief financial officer of the Diocese of Westminster Academy Trust. Prior to this, Mycon was chief operating officer for Inspiration Trust. Mycon was a member of the DFE expert group, which authored the standard for teachers professional development and contributed to the new specification for the national professional qualifications. Mycon is also a member of the Children's Commissioner Audit and Risk Committee and holds the advanced professional qualification in school, financial and operational leadership and is also a DfE-accredited School Resource Management Advisor. Today, Mykon is joining me to talk about her journey into and through the profession. Welcome, Mykon. Hello. I'm so glad to have you on the show, and I know you've done profiles before for magazines and lots of interviews, but I really want to talk to you today about your journey into the profession and how you think things have changed and what's next. Hi. Yes. I mean, I, I, I think it's now I'm totting up to about 24 years working in schools. So the majority of my working life. And I suppose like a lot of people, I joined the profession really wanting a job that that got me school holidays. I mean, I had a young daughter, but my husband also was a teacher and then later on a head teacher. So when I was working in my regular office job, it was always a bit difficult getting leave in the summer or at Christmas time because everybody wanted time off then. It mm. took me quite a while to apply for jobs. You know, I applied and people wanted experience, but I persevered and got my first job in a one-form entry primary school back in 1997, took a pay cut and a cut in hours to take the job. But that that was how motivated I was to sort of make the change. In terms of that role in the one form entry primary school, what was that? It was actually, at the time, it was called a senior senior administrative officer. And it was just at the time when schools were taking on more of their local management. So they were beginning to do things um, away from the local authority control. Some of the local authority services were beginning to end. So it was it was at a time, really, when that role was changing from a fairly a fairly basic administrative role into someone who was doing financial forecasting. I did quite a bit around governance at the time, and I was also doing some very early work on um, recording data and standards. So, you know, it was in the early days before league tables, but we were beginning to need to show progress for Ofsted inspectors when they came in. And there was an element Mm. as well of leading teaching assistants and meal supervisors, because often those those roles didn't really get managed. In terms of moving from the role that you did before into a school, was it much of a culture shock? Had you lots of transferable skills? I think the skills were transferable. I didn't find I didn't find that the work difficult. I and I didn't, you know, I was motivated to do it and to make the change. I had spent some time um shadowing school business, what were school admin officers at the time, school secretaries. 
in my husband's school. So the, the head teacher at the time let me come in and sort of sit in the office and see how things were working. And mm. I went for several interviews, but often the feedback was that we haven't got experience working in a school. We need people who, who know how schools work. But, I, you know, once I was in, it wasn't challenging work. We, I'd come from a very busy environment. I'd led a planning admin team and in Westminster Council, and we were dealing with thousands and thousands of applications a year, sort of often had irate architects and householders on the line. So, you know, I didn't, I didn't find, particularly find any challenge from parents or, or even children, you know, it, it, I, I didn't find the work particularly hard. And, and um, it, you know, because I was interested in it, I was interested in how schools ran and, and the, the leadership aspects. I, I, I suppose I went a little bit over and above and, you know, um, tried to find, thing, find more things out and understand more as I went along. Yeah, I think there is an element of that, isn't it? If you're coming in at a particular level, you know, it's asking questions, isn't it? It's being nosy mm. and showing up at meetings and saying, well, how does that work? Or why do we do this? And understanding the wider context. Yeah, I, I often say that, that. It's interesting you you say sort of being nosy. I always, I've often referred to myself and one of the characteristics of a good business leader is you're the nosiest person in the building. You know, you are. <laughs> so what, what the, why do you do that? What's this for? And I think it's sort of, it's the nature of the job, but it does make us sort of really knowledgeable about the whole system, how the whole system works. I was going to say, so you've, you've moved into education at this point. You're a senior administrative officer. So I can't imagine that you stayed that for very long. Um, I'm trying to think. I mean, my daughter was quite young at the time. She just started school and my husband had actually um, just moved into leadership in schools. So I was probably in that role. Um, I'm trying to think. I was probably in it for eight or nine years. Um, I was quite ill in that time. I had, had a really bad bout of pneumonia that sort of wiped me out for several months and I was, you know, I wasn't really thinking about career. And I got, we got to sort of the early 2000s, probably around 2004, 2005. And I started to see sort of jobs advertised with the, these letters after it saying needs the CSBM. And, I, you know, I'd really been interested in the role in education, but I, the, the, the National College had actually passed me by. So I started to have a look at what, you know, what is this CSBM? What what is this qualification that I don't know anything about? And that was when you started to see jobs being advertised as school business managers. And I I just, I realised that there was a qualification and decided, well, you know, I want to do it. If I'm I'm doing the job, I want to to have the qualification and I want to be in a position that when, when I do feel ready to move on, I've got the right qualification. And of course, then it becomes a bit of a catalyst, doesn't it? Once you start studying and um, you start seeing the jobs, it was really quite quite quickly from that time to moving to a school business manager job, a bigger role in a bigger school. It, 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 it was just a sort of natural move at that point. And that would have been about 2006. I think that was when I just started actually working in education. I started as a PA. And like you say, the business manager qualifications were only just beginning then. And I think I missed the boat on that as well, to be honest. It's interesting how they've developed and and they've expanded. And I think you were involved, weren't you, in developing the professional standards for the role? Yeah. So um, a bit later on, sort of when I moved on from a bigger primary and then into a secondary school and, and 
it was that progression and, and actually social media sort of getting onto Twitter in the early days when there were only a handful of school business managers on Twitter in about 2010 when I joined. Um, so so you, you became sort of noticed in a way. I mean, I, I felt like I had no followers forever. And then all of a sudden I started getting contacted and I was contacted by what was then um, the National NASBAM, weren't they, the Bursars Association, but now the Institute of School Business Leaders. Um, and I met Stephen Morales, and then I was asked to um, form part of the practitioner reference group for the professional standards. And I, and I think sort of in, in that intervening time, I'd, I'd done the CSBM, but I also did the advanced diploma. And, and I just felt mm. that there was a need to really codify what it meant to be a school business manager, professional school business leader, what, whatever we're going to, you know, I'm not too hung up about the, the job type we, we use, but to sort of set out some professional standards, but and also some skills and abilities, not not just for us as a profession, but to, to clarify to other leaders and governors what the role's about and what it en encompasses and, and what what sort of different aspects of professionalism you can have within that. And, and I think, you know, I think we came up with something that was was a good piece of work and it's been refined and developed since then. And it's leading into different qualifications. You know, ISBL have got a level five HR CIPD qualification. I did in 2017-18, I did the um, SITBA Advanced Professional Certificate, which is in financial and operational leadership. And, and it's that that is broadly equivalent to level seven. So so we're looking at um, qualifications and apprenticeship routes for business managers, you know, through beyond degree level and, and doing some really quite detailed strategic thinking, um, as well as sort of university masters in education. So, uh, you know, the, the, the routes are there. And I think you get you get different things from from different courses and it's important that we we recognize as a profession that we should be looking for cpd part of the, one of the difficulties is the cost isn't it for some yeah. school business leaders the school won't pay um the school can't pay it's not prioritized i'm interested in sort of looking at routes through the, the apprentice program where schools could use their levy, but also, you know, I self-funded my um, my sit for qualification. It, it just, but for me, it was it was worthwhile to do that, and I don't regret it. But it, but it was, you know, it was quite a struggle at the time. I think, like talking about when you first noticed the MCSBM qualification development of those as we've gone through you've been very much a part of kind of laying down the track ahead of you as you go, haven't you? You know, you've created this pathway that I think school business leaders are starting to follow now as they enter the profession. Yeah, I mean, I always describe it as, a, as an element of luck. But, but you know, I kind of, I'm not someone who sits still. So, you know, my career post-Dunraven Educational Trust, where we, we did a terrific amount in the 10 years I was there, I've done shorter contracts and more sort of start-up and set-up jobs I kind of like to be kept busy I like the challenge um mm. you know and I like fixing things and I think I've that, that applies to professional learning as well you know 
if that's your interest and, and you're at a point in your life where you can put some energy into your career, then there are lots and lots of opportunities. But that's not to denigrate the school-based professional who is doing a really important job at school level. You know, never forget your roots in a way. You know, those one-form entry primary school business managers, they they know every aspect of the school and they're often a very critical leader within the school. And they know how to do everything. You know, I always said this, you, if you've worked in a small primary, you know the, the basics of every bit of the job because you've had to do it. And, and the hardest thing is scaling up and trusting other people to yeah. do it and, you know, moving into that <laughs> sort of supervisory role. How did you find it? Because like you say, you started at one form entry and then you went to another primary mm-hmm. and then you went into a secondary. Yeah. How did you find that, those span of roles? So, I mean, I think... It, it was an interesting journey. So the, the second primary school I worked in was quite a big primary school and it was quite quite a challenging one, challenging in terms of staffing, um, a, a, a deprived parent community, but also challenges around the buildings and the state of the estate. And I think in what was a relatively short time there, I, I think every aspect, you know, from recovering a financial deficit to dealing with some some very, very uncomfortable staffing matters to dealing with sort of, you know, roofs falling in in classrooms. I, I, it was almost like it was a fast track into every bit of leadership you had to do. And this it was at a time when the school had a leadership deficit. There were sort of a, 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 a number of acting leaders. So there wasn't anybody really who was focused on... Um, long term on the school at that time I when I got the job in the secondary school I mean I always say I you know apply up I applied up I didn't expect to get interviewed and I certainly didn't expect to get it and when I did my first day I just I was terrified I I spent the day terrified and I spent and I think a number of people who've made this transition from a primary school to a secondary school state say the same you know so many people you go from sort of maybe having a staff of 35 40 to over 100 and we, we grew during that time as well um the numbers you know you've got to put another couple of noughts on the end <laughs> so that was quite hard <laughs> um and the other thing was being able to you know develop a team i think i think when i joined the school it was at a time when we weren't really thinking about sort of building support teams and the skills we needed. You tended to have sort of maybe um, lower level administrators and seniors. And, and I think as the sort of finance and business aspects developed, you realised that you needed to start to develop people to different levels. So mm. you, had to, you had to spot who those people were make sure they got trained, but also allow them to sort of carry out their role in the way that worked for them. And if you've been used to doing it all yourself, that that can actually be quite difficult because you, you're used to having things done in a particular way. So I think that was that was one of the biggest learning curves for me was to sort of let it go when it wasn't quite how <laughs> I would have done it and, and focus on outcomes. And, and I think that's probably... You know, so I then moved into bigger settings and working with multiple schools. You have to take that with you because you can't run. No, you know, you can't run 11 budgets from the centre. So you have to rely on people and, you, you, you know, you have to 
get them to work as close to the way of working that you want without sort of making it overly, um, you know, dictatorial or difficult for them because, you know, in, in the, they're going to have other elements of their job that they have to focus on as well. What advice would you give to any school business managers listening who are currently in primary and are thinking of applying to secondary? Is there anything they can do in terms of preparing themselves or in the way that they present at an interview? You, you have to go in believing that that you can do it and that your experience is relevant because it, it it will be relevant because you will have you will have done every aspect of the job you will have fixed issues on premises you'll know what good looks like i think what what i would say is sort of do something understand something around integrated curriculum financial planning sort of timetable planning so that you can talk credibly about sort of staff deployment. That that was one of the areas that came up in my interview, actually, even, you know, even back in 2000, and it was probably 2007, 2006, late 2006 or early 7. Um, that, that's the aspect. And the other thing will be convincing people that you can, you can manage a larger team and scale up. But, but it is possible to do, and you're, you know, you're likely to be as skilled as anyone else in the room. We, we know that there is a, a skills shortage in, in the profession. We know it's difficult to recruit into posts. It's difficult to find people with the right skills and also people with the right, um, I'm going to say temperament, because it's it's hard working in schools. And I think it can be, you know, it can be challenging being the only senior leader who is not a teacher it can be, be challenging sort of trying to get through the workload whilst sort of being part of a bigger duty rotor for, you know, for duties and meal supervision, playground duties, things like that, which you will need to be in a secondary school. So I'd say to sort of, you know, apply up, have confidence and, and don't don't be knocked back too much if if it doesn't work out. They're very They're very different, I guess, in terms of I mean, there's, there's more people, but but I think secondary schools tend to be a little bit more formal. One tip I'd say is, you know, learn the, that school secondary schools run on periods. So I spent probably the first year with a card t- setting out the periods of the day and the times so that I got to meetings on time because people will ask to meet you period four. And unless you've got the card <laughs> yeah. come from primary school, you don't know that's after lunch. <laughs> Yeah, it's little things like that, isn't it? The the quirkiness of secondaries, you know, primaries yeah. are quirky themselves, but like it's the different quirks and yeah, and understanding just the, the daily operations, isn't it? Yes, yeah, yeah. So, so slightly different can can be more unionized, but that's you know that's a generalization, but can you know can have more uh, more unionization and, and more um, I suppose more sort of um, separation of roles and duties. I just want to come back to something that you touched on before, which is, you know, if you're not a teacher, it can be difficult being mm. the only non-teacher on the SLT or in those meetings. Yeah. Have you been in a difficult situation in that regard? Yeah, I mean, I have done in 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 more than one job, actually. And, and I think it can be quite, it can be quite debilitating. You can feel quite put down. And, and, you know, and even someone perhaps who gives the sort of confidence I might give can can still get really demotivated and demoralised by it. I, I've reached the point in my career where 
if I don't like it, I don't stay. You know, if I, if I, I, most jobs I move on from in a good place, but I won't stay in a job where I feel that my skills and abilities aren't, aren't going to be used appropriately. And I realize that most people aren't in that position or aren't at that point in their career. And, and I think, you know, you have to, you probably have to do some soul searching and plan your next steps because I think if that is the culture of a school or a trust, I think it's very hard to to make a difference and make a change. You know, if you're if you're just sort of um, consigned to bringing in the tea and trying to make savings on you know the twenty percent that that isn't staffing, you're not going to make a big difference. I, I think. And I think you you can sort of, you know, when you're doing your presentations to governors and to SLT, you can use some of the departmental information now around excellent school resource management and how it is an holistic process. You know, it's about sort of um, using the skills of your finance professional. I certainly think that there is a a newer breed of trust leaders and head teachers coming through, certainly the, the the national professional qualifications do have a stronger focus on that strategic financial leadership and the deployment of staff. So I think, you know, I think there is um, the space for school business leaders, but I I don't, I don't think we should pretend that it's perfect everywhere and that, that there aren't real challenges for for some colleagues in, in this, in their workplaces. I work with some school business leaders who, are in that position or who have been in that position and it like you say I've advised them to do the same it's about soul searching it's about accepting it for what it is and saying okay well what can you get from this what can you learn from this and how can you prepare to move forward to a different place that will value you and recognize you and accept you and utilize you you know and and it's empowering them to to get that because I think I've been in that situation as well and it does take courage sometimes The, the most courage can be actually the best thing I can do is walk away yeah it, it does take courage and it and it, it because being in that situation can be quite debilitating you can lose confidence mm. and yeah i guess the the way you can retain confidence is by talking to colleagues who who will tell you that it is not like that everywhere that 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 you know these are probably the minority of settings and the settings that are perhaps not moving um moving their thinking forward in the way that it is moving forward sort of you know in policy terms as well as everything else and and you know if it's like you say keep your head down and get the most out of it and and you know but but don't don't get don't get try not to get too hung up on it try to just do the best job you can get the most experience you can and the best things you can to to, to build your CV for the next challenge. I think the profile has changed, hasn't it? A lot, you know, over the looking back to 2006 to where we are now in terms of mm. bursars to school business managers to school business leaders. And with the development of multi-academy trusts, we've, we've gone into this chief operating officer role and chief finance officer yeah. role. There are so many ways that people can go. What drove you, obviously you were at this school for 10 years, what made you take that leap and move into that area? Well, I think so. Dunraven was on a journey in that time, and and I, you know, I I loved my time there. We 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 did it all, didn't we? We we kind of um, we converted to academy status. We rebuilt the school. We opened a primary phase. Uh, we became a teaching school. 
um, we became an academy wow. sponsor. Um, and all of that, that was very, you know, it was fulfilling. It, it was, it was great to do. Um, but I just, I just got to the point where I lost the momentum and I actually, for me, I needed something different. And initially mm. I thought I wanted, I didn't really want to be doing the finance. I wanted to be doing something else in, in a multi-academy trust. But but actually, it's the finance and operations and and the challenges of it that really you know do motivate me. But but I think I'm better placed doing the sort of I wouldn't call it crisis management exactly, but the the sort of um, setup and getting getting things organised and getting getting a function going. I'm not sure I've got the patience for steady state, <laughs> which is um, <laughs> you know I think I think where we got to and I. I you know, I'm, I'm probably inclined to say ten years in a job is is quite a long time, and I think mm-hmm. it, it, you reach a point then where is is it now or never? You know, I'm not I'm not getting younger now, and um, you do read about how it becomes harder to get um, get employed as you sort of move into your mid and late fifties. So it was kind of for me, it was a now or never, um, but also a desire to sort of see and learn a bit more so do, doing this the SRMA work and some of the consultancy work meant that I've you know I've had the privilege of working with a lot of different trusts and um you learn you learn a little bit from each of them you, I've also you know I, I did some interim work obviously with Dane Rachel at Inspiration Trust in Norfolk but also with Bedford Free School and the the, the Advantage Schools and you know, they're, they're sort of quite high profile in terms of policy and politics, but at the same time, you know, still need someone doing the, the kind of, you know, detailed finance and operations. I think working out of London was was a good thing to do. It kind of brings you back to ground and um, makes you realise that it is probably more challenging in, in some of some areas. I think the coastal areas are particularly challenging that funding is very different mm. outside of London. Teacher supply is different. It, it, you know, I know we all struggle with staffing, but London attracts a kind of churn of young young graduates. Perhaps, perhaps less so with house prices now. But somewhere like Norfolk and Great Yarmouth, you know, you've got to be thinking about how are you going to train and develop your own people if you don't. You know, you're not going to have a supply mm. of um, graduates coming into the area necessarily so so, you know those jobs have got me thinking more about um workforce supply not and not just on the teaching side this this applies equally doesn't it to the the business support services as as um Mm. trust develop and become quite big big organizations and big businesses without the backstop of a local authority how do we have the specialists how do we recruit and train the specialists to do the work that a big big organization needs to have done when you left Unraven you said you know it was now or never mm. and you chose to take on some higher profile contract mm. what made you go down that route rather than saying actually I want to be a business manager but just in a different context I, I wanted something I, I wanted something different I, I still sometimes sit on the fence around you know I do have some 
unfulfilled ambitions about sort of CEO jobs. But I, I kind of, I don't know, the more I've seen, the less the less appealing it's become. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I, you know, I've enjoyed therefore doing doing something that is is playing to my skill set whilst sort of whilst having enough kind of newness for me to sort of feel that I'm I'm progressing and learning and doing something different yeah I, I definitely definitely do enjoy I mean each trust I seem to go we you know we go a bit bigger in terms of budget and size and and I think learning to sort, sort of how to work and operate at bigger scale is quite interesting as well that that's um you know and growing trusts is is quite a challenge and you know there's an interesting technical challenge there so I, I think you you know it's the variety whereas possibly things things would have just been the same for me you know unless unless you take that leap of faith you you just do the same and I and I think it's hard it's hard to sort of see what needs to be done if you've been in a job a very long time yeah you can lose perspective can't you lose perspective and also lose sort of I, I you know you you become comfortable don't you so doing contracts is kind of quite quite a good way of keeping yourself on your toes so <laughs> I, I have a permanent job now it's sort of the pandemic made me think well better, better get a permanent one for now but <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, it keeps you on your toes if you're doing a contract because you've got to perform, don't you? Yes, absolutely. And very similar to you, I like fixing things and kind of being at the sharp end and, and solving problems. And yeah. that's what's kept me moving, I think, in the, the different types of work that I've done in the past and that I do now. Yeah. It would be very easy, wouldn't it, to, to just sit there and say, you know, this is my job, yeah. full stop. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I like to be challenged as well. Mm. Something I am interested in, because obviously you, you've, you've talked a lot about the finance and, you know, you enjoy that and obviously the operations as well. But are you an accountant? No, I'm not. I'm not. Someone said to me, you don't have to be qualified to be an accountant. You can, you know, you can be an accountant by virtue of experience. And an accountant told me that. Yeah. So I thought, oh, I, I'm not a qualified <laughs> accountant. I, I, But I have done training sort of I've done some short courses and then I did the sort of SIPFA courses for specifically designed for the academy sector and I've you know I've produced mm -hmm. multiple sets of, of accounts from you know from actually actually sitting down and producing them myself from sort of 2011 to 2017 to overseeing auditors and accountants doing them it, it is challenging, and you know, I often have a sort of crisis of confidence, thinking, you know, am I, am I qualified? Am I able to do this? But, but, but I think, you know, that the proof is in the track record. You, you know, the the trusts I've worked with have had good audit outcomes and and get good management letters. So, but but what you can't do, I think, is not have an interest at all. Uh, you. you and if if you are going to progress, you know that there's a route into the sort of operating officer role and CFO role as specialists now. My preference is to mm. be sort of finance and operations. I like the whole portfolio. I like how it fits together and and the link to leadership. But there are operating officer jobs where there will be a chief financial officer that you can work with, and sort of not not have such a a huge sort of 
uh, responsibility for the finance. I, I just, I quite like it. I quite like being in charge of the money. <laughs> Uh, again, I was exactly the same. I like the COO and the CFO. I like seeing the whole picture like, yeah. and putting it all together. Mm. And the reason I ask that is I know a lot of school business leaders who aren't accountants, mm. who feel that, you know, a number of them ask me quite regularly, should I do an accountancy qualification? And I feel a bit torn because I don't want to say, no, I'm not an accountant either. I've been a CFO, you know, a, a while ago now. Mm. And I still work, you know, with with finance, with different schools and academies. But I think with the Academy Trust Handbook, as it's now called, I think it's the Academy Trust Handbook, yeah. isn't it? You know, there is a movement to to these financial qualifications and the CFO role. It just seems to be getting stronger with every iteration. You know, what, what is your view on that? It, it, it's interesting. It is. And it's actually full circle. So when Academies, the very first Academy Financial Handbook, the, the CFO was required to be a qualified accountant. So back in, in the early days before the, the Academies Act of 2010, so I always used to joke at Dunraven, well, when we convert, I have to make myself redundant because I'm not qualified. <laughs> and the, the handbook was was changed in order to sort of quantify that it could be the school business professional, school business manager or other, other sort of equivalent who could become the CFO. That said, you know, some of these trusts are big organizations, that they're, they're big charities and you know, the, the requirements of this, you know, the charity SORP and the, the um, Academy's accounts direction are quite exacting. So I think what you have to do is, is have enough knowledge to know if, if you're not going to be an accountant and you want to sort of hold that post, you've got to have enough knowledge to know what good looks like and you know what you need in your team supporting you. So the first mm. sort of after Dunraven, when I was at Langley Park Learning Trust, the head of finance was a qualified accountant and their portfolio, although I was the CFO and this person didn't want to be CFO, they were responsible for the day-to-day -day sort of financial management control, returns, reporting. Mm -hmm. and, and I think, you you know, there is, the, the, the route through would be the SIP for qualification, which is which is named in the handbook. So, you know, there is a non-accountancy qualification that is that is actually specified within the financial handbook if you wanted that route. It's quite it's quite a challenging qualification. Mm. But but you can probably complete it more quickly and with fewer exams than uh pursuing an accountancy qualification. But but the, you know there are roles within academy trusts and senior roles. You know, you could argue an operating officer role might might open up sort of CEO roles more than a pure CFO role would. So, so you know, you've got to really look at the roles that if, if, if you're interested in that career route, you've got to look at the roles that are available and look at your skill set, because it might be that the trust needs someone who can do strategic organisational design, who can do sort of uh, workforce management and, and workforce development, or who can, you know, really think about organisational structures and policies. That there's there's a lot there in, in that sort of um, higher sphere. I think thinking about the school level practitioner, I think the financial skills are still needed. You know. I, we we 
over time, I've seen a mix of, of abilities, I would say, in the schools I've worked with. And, and sometimes, you know, some academy trusts will then provide a full kind of finance business partnering approach. Some will centralise all of it. But I, I do think that you miss something if you don't have somebody who really is on the money at, at school level, really, really looking at things and critically thinking about, you know, do we need to spend this? Is that is that the best way to deploy people? You can really lose something in the distance. I, th- I think we could probably take away some of the, some of the drudge of um, the single school business manager's work by centralising some of the processing, and that would allow yeah. more time for strategic thinking. It is interesting, isn't it? Like you say, some of the maps have gone for, you know, on paper, centralising makes economic sense and it creates a level of efficiency and it protects in terms of compliance. So it does make sense on paper, but like I say, I do think it does lose something at a local level where there are opportunities to develop the role of school business manager more in a local way and make it more strategic. Yeah, I mean, I've thought about this a lot and, and I've spoken to a few CEOs and they don't, not all have found efficiencies and economies by centralizing the finance you might get you might get it done at the standard you want but it doesn't always save money and i think to mm. really save money and see efficiencies we'd need to use systems better you know make sure that we're cutting out the paper that people are you know you're not filling something out for someone else to fill in to put onto a computer it's it's you know single point of entry yeah. and authorization through a system and I don't think I don't think the sector has got there collectively yet. I think, you know, and I think that in terms of managing, say, managing a cleaning or a catering contract on the ground, I think you, you might be able to procure more effectively centrally. Um, although having a very large contract for any one um, bit of service de- delivery puts a lot of risk into it, doesn't it? But if nobody think yeah. at school level thinks it's their responsibility, the contract doesn't get well managed. And, and these are the areas mm. I think that, that we see some, some problems within some multi-academy trusts that you, you, might, you might go out and get a very good deal on your cleaning contract, but then find no one takes ownership of it at school level. So, so where are the complaints? You know, there's just a raft of complaints. And Really, when you get a new contract, the key thing is somebody on site managing it and sort of having the relationship with the supplier to to get over the the inevitable hurdles at the at the beginning, and that's not necessarily going to be best placed with a deputy head teacher or assistant head teacher. You know that is where I think there is a need for really good operational leadership. And and I say operational, I think I think you you potentially could separate finance out. I'm not saying you should, but I think it's it's almost easier to do that than not. But then, you know, who is who is then giving the strategic input around resource management? With the local context in mind, because I think, mm. like you're saying, I think people look at a job description of a school business manager and look at it as task-driven. And it would be easy to say, well, the trust can do this, or, you know, this person can do that, or a mm. deputy can do this instead. And and you could farm it out all over the show, couldn't you? And just yeah. create this gap. And I think it's the local intelligence, it's the observations, it's the skill set, it's the local knowledge, it's the people management, and all of those things that don't get written on a job description, but school business yeah. managers do every day. 
I, I think you're, you're you're absolutely right. And if you know, if you take something like first line HR as an example, if if there's a sort of distant, you might have really good HR providers working at the centre, but often it's the business manager who drives that first line HR, the return to work interviews, the monitoring, the sort of noticing how many days perhaps somebody is having off or whether someone has difficulties in, in terms of their family or, or emotional life. It's often the school business manager that, that, that is that point of contact. So, so I think, you know, when you're developing business services, you've got to think about what's the first line, what is the first line of defence like, and it's a really important one. And then, you know, what, what can be escalated and, and of course, you can have experts doing casework, you can have experts training people, but they ca- they cannot replace knowing people and be- being able to sort of have the, the, the types of conversations that, that are needed on a day-to-day basis. And like I say, having those relationships and being the front line, knowing when to escalate, but also having the skills to de-escalate situations, because... I always say this, business managers avert so many crises every day that nobody will ever know just by being there and having those conversations. <laughs> I feel like I do this at trust level now that, that you know, you, you actually become, <laughs> you actually do it on a macro level in, in many ways. I th- part of the, mm. part of the, the jo- I would say one of the joys of the job is, and it goes back to being that nosiest person in the room. You know, you know what's going on, and you're you're kind of spinning plates, and you're you're thinking ahead and horizon scanning. So you notice mm. that teacher A is really really cross with the head or teacher B, and you can yeah. do some. You know, and often that's it's because of the stress of the job and everything else. But you can be the person who sort of can just fix things in the background and that that's what good yeah. operational leadership is it's making the organization run smoothly you know keeping things well oiled and i always say we shouldn't feel ashamed about good management or good operations there's nothing dirty about it it is what keeps mm. an organization ticking and running and being effective absolutely I hope everybody listening is paying attention to this because I think it's that thing where business managers, they look at the task list and go, I've got nothing done today, but I've been really busy. Well, they've been busy doing all the things that we've just said. Yeah. 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 And, and uh, you know, I, I live in, hopefully, you know, the maybe the pandemic has taught us that some of those tasks we can do in a space that is private and quiet and sort of, you know, look at our week and chunk it in a way that, you know, there is a day where you're not necessarily in the office so that you can get through those yeah. tasks. Because I think, you know, being in a school office or a mat office, there are multiple distractions and things that you would never have guessed would happen, happen in the day. You know, so even even in the holidays, so you think it may yeah. be quiet and, you know, crisis sort of pops its head <laughs> out from undercover so you have to deal with it so yeah you know one thing I'd I'd hope is and I'd hope that school you know um, school leaders in terms of head teachers and deputies understand that for some people it might be better if they had some time where they can work without any distractions at all to get through the task list one of one of the challenges in um, in a multi-academy trust where, where you have sort of um, fairly high delegation and school business managers is that you know 
they have to get their returns for the trust that are set time. And I think that does put pressure mm. on them when um, when there's so much busyness going on in the school. You know, the demands from the centre don't stop because there is a cycle for um, management accounts, there's a cycle for financial returns, for HR information. And I think there's some challenges there in thinking about what's the what is the best way for us to do some of these functions, which doesn't necessarily mean centralising or taking away accountability, actually. I think, you know, as I said, I think a focus on systems and perhaps more centralisation of the administrative side of it might, you know, done well, yeah. um, would would allow more time for, for, for strategic thought and, and firefighting, day-to-day firefighting. Yeah, I remember as a business manager, people, you know, emailing me saying, I need this and can you get it to me tomorrow? And I'm like, you have no idea what it's like to work in a school, do you? You know, I know you don't. You've sat in your office and you've just decided that you need this tomorrow. It's not happening. Um, So, yeah, it it was interesting making that transition and saying, you know, having people say to me, you need to get this from them. Say, no, you you don't have any idea. You need to give them a bit more time for that. You know, working with auditors was a good example as well. They're like, no. You know, so I was like, well, you need to help me prepare them so they need to know what you're asking for. I mean, I think it's it's really difficult, isn't it? Because the level of scrutiny is quite high. Um, and I think, again, yeah. the bigger the trust, the sort of perhaps more, more scrutiny there is. And, and, you know, the individual schools are feeding into a bigger organisation. Um, so that that's why I think I would always say make sure that you – you share systems, you know, don't, don't keep things like payroll or HR systems separate. Really nail those, get them done, get your financial system into a single database. And actually, you can then do much more remotely and from the centre. But but often people, you know, that they equate sort of having choice over that with autonomy. And autonomy is something that's held really really closely to our hearts in the education sector you know the head teachers don't want to lose autonomy mm. in a manner. and business managers likewise and, and will feel sort of perhaps insecure about their jobs I think it's my job you know people like me should be saying no no there are jobs there, there is a need for this role it may be slightly different you know there might be bits that reframe it but it doesn't mean the job isn't there you know that that there isn't a need for that high quality sort of operational and resource leadership at at school level. I think it's focusing on systems and processes, isn't it, to make it more efficient rather than an expectation, well, if you can't do it, then someone else will have to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Don't don't just set up a central team and have have them collect all the same information and collate it, you know, look at ways. But you know, that that journey of getting there to better systems requires persuasion around investing in new technology asking people to work differently and, and asking asking teachers perhaps to use systems they're not familiar with. It's not asking them to yeah. do additional work. It, it's saying rather than an email or a form, we would like you to input it directly into this form online. Um, but, but that can be, you know, that can be quite, quite challenging in, in the sector. I think you touched on growth earlier as well. And I think especially with growing multi-academy trusts who maybe at a certain size have retained a higher level of autonomy or perceived autonomy over systems and things like that. You know, there's a need, isn't there, to to centralise systems at least. I think if you don't do that well enough, those 
systems, if they don't adapt, they become cumbersome and create more issues. So there is a need to evolve and become leaner, I think, in those areas. It it definitely, there there is a definite need and and a need for sort of everyone to be using the same so that the information can be pulled to trust level in, you know, in in dashboards. And it's quite a crowded market. You know, everyone is trying to sell you something. So I don't, you know, I don't want to get into death by system either. (laughs) It's a fine balance. Um, But but I think that, I think there are, you know, there's a minimum set of systems that that you need and and they tend to hinge around compliance, financial and risk compliance, sort of health and safety. I think IT communications is really important. And, and some way of knowing your workforce, you know, when you have a very, a very sort of spread out system and, and lots of different providers, you, you just just knowing who you employ and at what what salary ranges requires sort of pulling information from everyone, and and you can't rely on necessarily a bud, piece of budgeting software being correct. You know, what what's your single point of truth? Yeah. Um, so, so that's that's I think where I've got to on on sort of the need for systems, but I but I don't you know I wouldn't say centralize for centralization's sake. Be careful mm-hmm. around procurement because you're not always going to get a cheaper deal with a bigger contract. It can become, you know, it can have more layers of administration and and costs in it, and and. There's, you know, there's a risk to a supplier, isn't there, going for a very big contract and, and it will limit your suppliers as well. Like you say about not doing overkill with systems, I always think of it as a point of we are one organisation across multiple sites. So we we are one employer and we have one set of responsibilities and accountabilities yeah. to all of these people. It's health and safety, it's HR, it's safeguarding, it's financial compliance, it's all of those things. And I think yeah. if your systems are driven from that point, at least the rest of it can be discussed mm. developed collaborated on over time can't it yeah yeah I think so and I think you know that multi-academy trusts are all very different and there are some trusts that because of the nature of their schools will be um you know I think it's at Grange famously sort of have their 80 20 model you know 20 percent is delegated 80 percent mm. is centralized but their portfolio of schools is one of schools with great challenges, you know, and, and in areas where people numbers can be a challenge and where funding can be a challenge. And there are other trusts where, you know, you would lose pupils if they all did the same. Um, so, so you've got to know the context yeah. of your trust and, you know, allow as much or as little autonomy as is needed, but but also sort of as much as is needed. And, and I'm sure Outward will, will also agree with this as much as is needed to sort of develop your leaders and develop you know be attractive to leaders of the future so you know you you have to have a job that is going to be attractive to head teachers business managers and other school leaders touching on the future what do you think the future is for school business managers and you know academy trusts you know so school business managers in academy context and maintain context I think there will always be people doing school business management. I, I think we, we may see fewer roles called school business managers. I think, that, you know, and, and you will see more specialist roles. So perhaps sort of there will be routes around marketing, finance, premises, estates, HR. 
and and I think mm. what we have to do as professionals is recognize that there is space within the sphere of school business professionals or school business leaders for all these for these specialist and these generalist posts and that you know you can in multi academy trusts certainly there will be you know chief information officers there will be um directors of estates there will be people dealing with uh, marketing and governance the the governance professional is is now a role that we're seeing quite a lot and all of these roles are roles that someone coming through the traditional business management route could you know could could aspire to if they if they wanted to and there will also still be generalist roles at varying levels within schools but but I think there will be fewer designated roles as school business managers or school business leaders I think I think the, the terminology may may change over time the other thing I would say is you know people should we, we shouldn't fear it because we, we're the people in the schools with the skills doing doing the roles and I think we should be looking to sort of um, gain experience or qualifications or training in these different areas if of interest to us so that we you know the ones who have come through the system and who understand how schools work are putting themselves in good positions to go into specialist or generalist roles in trusts or in clusters of schools as as they develop because otherwise you know we're sort of doing ourselves a disservice yeah we want to prepare for what's next even if we're not 100% sure what that might look like yeah yeah but but yeah, I think I think it's a time of change, and I and I think, you know, certainly there's been this, I suppose, reinvigoration of the academies program, and and last time that happened, I know a lot of people felt, you know, people working in single schools will feel very unsettled by it, and and I don't want to take away that sort of anxiousness about your your job, what's your job going to be like, that you know. It, it, it will feel unsettling. And we, we have seen some quite high profile cases of academy trusts sort of looking to outsource some of their business and um, business services operations, looking at making school business managers redundant and centralizing everything. And, and you know, you don't actually have a lot of control about over that if you're a practitioner in a school that joins an academy trust. The strategy is is developed some way away from you, isn't it? If you are in a situation where you might feel that it's being taken out of your control, it's about preparing yourself now and exploring all the different possible routes and strands of business management yeah. to be able to apply for different roles in the future. Yeah, and and sort of having having um having an eye on what what the trust if if you are going into a trust and it and it is going through a process of sort of reorganizing its business services having an eye on what roles you would want within that um, within that structure. Because, you know, if they're going through any kind of restructuring process, part, part of a restructuring redundancy process is finding roles for people within your organisation. Yeah, being a match. Yeah, yeah. And think, thinking about what, what roles, and, you know... And, <laughs> So I'm a, I'm a good case in point. No, no role needs to be forever, you know. And and I, you know, I take I I take on board issues around mobility and people not being able to travel a long way to work. And 
it, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not making light of how challenging it is for people who are in that position. From a wider perspective, how do you think the profile has changed at the Department of Education? Well, I mean, you know, there is a lot of talk around, about the school business professional. You see quite a lot of mentions in um, the sort of resource management. So the good resource management guidance does talk about school business professional, school business manager. I've been to a couple of sort of, sort of speeches from Baroness Berridge, and she talks about the school very enthusiastically about the school resource management advisor program. And I think there is, mm. you know, I think there is recognition that there needs to be a sort of, if you like, a, a professional, a professionalised strand of business leadership within schools so so I think the department certainly do seem to be on side and and I think they're very keen around sort of making sure that the skills and the status of the business professional are, are, are really clearly spelled out so I think I, I don't think the department's a problem I, I'm not sure Gen, you know, I don't think the unions are particularly a, a problem. NAHT um, and ASCO will both talk about their school business professional strands. But I still think, mm. you know, that that then that doesn't always translate into the sector because we do still hear from school business managers who who feel, you know, that their skills aren't being used. That you know, if they do try and challenge it, it's not back. So. You know, there is a bigger challenge, isn't there, in, in embedding what the what the professionalised non-teaching roles are and should be within schools. And, and, and that's always, you know, I often talk about this and there'll often be some pushback saying, well, you know, we should be we should be paying for teachers that would that would pay for three teachers and we don't need that. But what? What happened was when, you know, some schools became academies, you know, all the things that were provided by the local authority and were were hidden in, in the sort of undelegated funding stopped happening. So, you know, internal audits stopped happening. And again, the department is having to sort of mandate some of these things going back. Estates management and really, really strategic use of capital funding, that has not always happened effectively in, in uh, academy trusts in the early days. Um, employment, you know, employment law and, and tribunals. So the department, I think, knows that, that there needs to be a sort of professionalisation of business services that, um, that, that mm. uh, and I guess you could argue, well, why strip it out of local authorities? And I guess the answer to that is that the academy trust is the entity, whereas with with local authority schools and local management in schools, the the local authority had limited powers to direct, didn't it? They didn't have to stay with local authority HR. I mean, many did, but they didn't have to stay with that or with local authority payroll. So the local authority mm. the local authority doesn't actually have the same freedom that an academy trust does in saying look you know look guys we need to do this together and we're going to do it together yeah. we've talked about the SBL role and how that has developed and how it is a profession mm. but we still have this gap don't we in terms of how it is recognized and we've talked about the unions NAHT and ASCO mm. have the school business management arm mm. 
But fundamentally, a lot still rests with the head teacher, doesn't it, in terms of what is this role? How is it going to be used in my school? Am I going to give this role the recognition it deserves? There's quite a lot of freedom still and, and flexibility to not to do that, isn't there? Yeah, th- there is. And I, th- I think there's two elements to this. One is, you know, the unions are the unions, so so they have a different role. ISBL isn't yet a chartered institute, so it's not like... Um, you know, we're not at the stage yet where you're a chartered business professional in the way you might be a chartered accountant or, or, or you know, a member of the CIPD. You, you don't have that sort of, we don't quite yet have that professional backstop where, where we say, well, we can't do this because you know, we'd be breaching our professional standards. So I think that needs, you know, I think that is a key aspect of what needs to happen. There needs to be a sort of, you know, chartered status and some agreed agreed experiential or qualification points to meet set levels and that's controversial because you know the, the majority I would say what you know if you look at the membership of ISBL the, the people in sort of roles like mine are the minority of the membership so you know you've got that fine balance of people feeling pushed out by the few loud voices who, who, who've made it kind of thing. So you've got to be really careful. I think you're right around at school level. And, and I think this flows across any job in, in any school in, in many ways. You know, you, you can see a lot of jobs and there's a wide variation of salaries, wide variation of what fraction the role is going to be. Some will be, will be supporting a very small budget, but, you know, if you if you're doing all of that in 12 hours a week, it's going to be a busy job, isn't it? And yeah. you're still, you know, if you're still responsible fully for um, health and safety, for business services, for cleaning, catering and financial management, then that's a big, that is a big responsibility. I think there has to be more work done with trust leaders, with school leaders, and and probably sort of coming from the department as well around the the types of professionals you should be seeing within within a trust or within a school, at, and the types of skills that that are needed, and and people working with that skill level, what what kind of um, you know where would they sit in terms of leadership? So I think you know there is. A, a strand that there is an expectation that a school business leader should be a member of the leadership team and that they should be able to report directly to governors. Mm. So, so you know, whether that then becomes something that is, you know, how, how do you check it and audit it? That, that's, that's the difficulty, isn't it? And I think there's also the challenge of, and this is going to, this will be controversial. And, and, and again, I don't, don't want to sort of denigrate anybody but there is a there is a big gap between somebody who's qualified at level four Mm. and someone who's qualified at sort of a postgraduate or master's level and who who is sort of working at that different strategic level so you know each job each job has value within the organization but you get different levels of you know in accountancy someone will start out doing um AAT maybe in an accountancy firm doing audits and then they progress through before they become senior managers and partners and and in in 
HR, you know, you it's quite clearly defined what sort of level you're operating at, at level four, level five, level seven. So I think we we probably do need to sort of I mean, it was done in part in the ISBL standards, wasn't it? But there does need to be a sort of the ability to assess where you sit within within those standards. You know, what what level of decision making do you have? What what's mm. your budgetary requirement? And and to be able to assess where where you sit, and for head teachers also to to assess where they want that role to sit, and is it just calling somebody a school business manager because they passed the qualification you know it, it, it's passing a qualification doesn't necessarily mean there's a role as a school business manager in that school that you're working in because you've also got people who are fulfilling the school business management role where the schools have said well actually we don't need a school business manager but you're going to do it anyway we're just going to call you something else we don't have to pay you the salary or, or give you the status I mean, that's, I, I guess that's more challenging, isn't it? But I would say to those people, build your CV and apply for a job somewhere else that is going to pay. You know, my my very, and I yeah. go back to my very first job in, in a school and the pay, the pay wasn't great. And I was, I was doing the full, you know, even before there was the qualification, I was doing the full range of um, business manager roles so I was in a good position then to get a job and to do the qualification quite quickly when when they came about because I you know I had the evidence to show I was doing it it could you know yes you can feel you, know, you can feel underpaid and underappreciated but make the most of what it is you're doing I think also if you know if you are being asked to do over and above what is in your job description or, or with it, what is beyond, you know, over and above what you're being paid, I think you should raise it with, with your line manager. You know, we shouldn't be frightened to sort of give feedback as well as receive feedback. One, one thing that really gets my goat is when I, I see people who are paid only term time only and they're frequently working during the summer mm. for free. And that, you know, yeah. That's not on, or or they're not able to get those that are working all year round are not able to get some time off in the summer, yet are sort of prohibited from taking time off during term time. And and I think, you know, it's a cultural shift and, and trust leaders like myself sort of have a part to play in talking about it and talking about sort of, you know, it it, it it's part of work life balance and well-being, isn't it? And when we talk about well-being, let's think about the whole workforce. Yeah. N not just one subset of it. I think it's about parity, isn't it? And I was having this conversation with someone just a few days ago, and we were talking about the role of school business manager and leadership. You yeah. know, there's a gap between level four and level seven yeah. and the different levels that people operate on. But if you are expected to, you know, be available you know all year round or out yep. of hours or do overtime etc you know it is a leadership yep. role that you are fulfilling it's not a nine to five where you can just switch off the computer and no one's going to bother you till you know nine o'clock the next yep. morning so and that comes again with like you're saying the recognition for the profession and having mm -hmm. you know a chartered body yep. to to make that so so to speak yep. and and I think you can be qualified you know it goes back to the are you a qualified accountant question you could be you know you can be working yep at a level beyond your qualification, you know, your paper qualification, 
that that you have to demonstrate, you know, you have to be able to demonstrate that through experience. So if you are making decisions on a regular basis, you know, you are the person on call making complex decisions over the summer, then yes, you are a leader and you're fulfilling a leadership role. Uh, And, you know, I'd Mm. like... I'd like for school business professionals to feel confident to raise it either with head teachers and or with governors or through ISBL or through the unions. Um, and, I, and I know, you know, there are some of us who, who on social media don't, don't bolt from sort of, you know, critiquing some of, some of the jobs that, that, that appear a bit egregious or, you know, expect an awful lot and an awful lot of seniority for not much pay you that that wouldn't happen mm. to um deputies and assistant heads in a school you you wouldn't you wouldn't see i don't think unless it's a co you know a job share i don't think i've ever seen a job for another leader in a school advertised as sort of you know 14 hours a week 8.30 till 6.30, you know, with the hours and the days and the weeks specified. Yeah. That's quite unusual at leadership level. And it would, you know, you, you're probably limiting people from, well, it goes back to status. You, you're going to limit your field if you, if you sort of limit who can apply in the first place. It's fascinating, isn't it? You know, looking at the broad spectrum of school business managers that we have you know, under the umbrella of school business management and thinking about how it can develop moving forward and what role I think, you know, various organisations like the unions and the Institute of School Business Leadership can play in that. Mm. You know, is there anything that we can be doing as a collective of, of school business leaders to to be helping them, to, to guide them, you yeah. know, to to add to that voice, I suppose? I think I, I think there's, there's, two, there's two sort of aspects. One is for the people who, you know, are in positions like ours to to you know to be willing to mentor and support people not necessarily with promotion but but guide them if they do need to raise issues with their leaders you know to, so to to be a critical friend when they have an issue and they they um they, they need to sort of perhaps make a pitch or or make a complaint yeah uh, so so i think there's you know having some encouragement or someone who's who's a network of people who've had that experience and who can talk someone through it would help and I think there is a need for you know people for for people who have have made it to sort of very senior positions not to forget what it was to be a school business manager in in a single form entry primary school to, to not to forget that the workload that a secondary school business manager will have had during COVID with the testing mm. and to, to be advocates for yeah. sufficient being spent on administration. And, and I, I use that term broadly, you know, business services, um, in order to have a have have it done professionally, you know, having harried overwork underpaid people will not serve the sector well. Because it, you know, mm. I think I, I was a colleague was saying to me, you know, the profile of the business management profession is, you know, we are women of a certain age, almost typically. I do see more of the the, the big jobs going to, going to men who are coming in from outside. And I kind of feel, you know, it's got to be an attractive profession for people to come into and stay in. 
and, and we we probably do need to attract yeah. people from other sectors, but at all different levels. But we we also probably want to attract people to come in at entry level and to look at the sort of um, routes that they could they could work through within the sector. But but you know, are, are you are you going to recruit? young graduates as trainee business leaders if if you're saying well sorry you've only you're only going to work 39 weeks a year and be paid for 44 you know it's a difficult one because budgets will always you know they'll always be needed for for, for teaching won't then we should be directing our resources into that sort of teaching learning education support but that's not to say we shouldn't spend what we need to spend on professional business services that that actually done well would 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 make you know would give the time to to drive through some of the efficiencies we're looking at around systems and around um around sort of automation of certain tasks my experience has been the more efficient and effective the business services and business systems are in a school or a trust the better the outcomes are in terms of education it might not appear to be direct mm-hmm. because we aren't stood in front of the class of 30 children every mm-hmm. day but what we put around it and the scaffolding and the services that we provide to make that happen yeah actually do have an impact yeah absolutely you know it's it's um it, it's if you have the space and time to think about sort of how to have you know a simpler I was working with some schools that, as the pandemic hit, didn't have cashless catering. And the, the catering services said, well, we're not going to serve meals because unless it's cashless. And, you know, you want to have the space and time and the planning, the strategic planning within the sector so that those things, you know, schools aren't left behind with things like that. And that, that you know, we're not... Yeah keeping going with very inefficient processes which which, which are wasteful and and you know they're, they're wasteful of time and money um you know you don't need to fill something out in triplicate you can authorize things through a system you can have workflows so that you know it's the click of a button and and probably you know many of the younger teachers coming in would would welcome um, a slightly more digital approach to the things that they need to do. And I think certainly families would, you know, families are much more used to being able to use an app to contact and to send messages. So so I think, you know, a bit of investing time in business processes would um, would benefit actually delivery. Wow. I, I've just looked at how long we've been speaking and we have got so carried away here. <laughs> I have absolutely loved this conversation. I was really looking forward to it. And I'm sure that everybody listening will be like, wow, there's, there's a lot we've said to think about, I think. <laughs> yeah. I think, I mean, I think it, it's a subject that, you know, I spend a lot of time thinking about. And I think that there's a way to go in the sector to really benefit from, you know, from new technology and from um, different ways of working. Um, and I think, yeah, school business leaders can be, you know, agents for change, you know. Absolutely. And I think we are at the precipice of another big change for school business management. It just feels that way, doesn't it? Especially after the pandemic, or we're still in the pandemic, we're coming out of it. But, you know, it feels that it's added a new impetus yeah. to to the discussion. I think so. And and I think, you know, one, one of the things I use in when I'm doing presentations, I have a little slide at the end and and I kind of feel, you know, post-pandemic, we should be asking ourselves if if not now, when? 
you know now is the time to yeah. lose the things that don't work um keep keep the stuff and develop the stuff that that we've learned to do you know without without um needing to be face to face and and really really hone in on developing you know someone said to me at the beginning let's not put it back in the corner because yeah it 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 can it it can streamline and this isn't about necessarily learning delivery but actually in investing in good systems and good business processes in the background would would save a huge amount if people want to get in touch with you about anything that you've said today or they have any questions for you where can they get hold of you um best place usually is twitter at mike on m i am sure you will get some messages after this podcast <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah i always advocate sbl twitter as well so yes please go and speak to mike on and i'm sure she'll be happy to answer any questions that you have i've really enjoyed chatting with you and I'll see you again soon. Thank you. If you have any questions or you'd like to continue the conversation about anything you've heard in today's episode, you can find MyCon's details and mine in the show notes on my website at www.ljbusinessofeducation.co.uk. Once we started talking, we literally couldn't stop. So if you love this episode, then you're in for a real treat next week as MyCon returns for part two. If you're listening to this podcast on an Apple device, and you like what you've heard, it would be great if you could rate and review the show as it makes it easier for others to find it. Thank you so much to everyone who has left a review already. I read and hugely appreciate every single one. You can rate and review the show by selecting the show in the Apple Podcast app, scrolling to the bottom and either tapping the stars to rate and or selecting write a review. This show is available in all of the podcast directories. Just make sure you hit the subscribe button in your chosen podcast player so you don't miss an episode. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next week.